0: So, if you ever wrote a short story for your literature class, or your composition class, something like that, you know what it's like to be responsible for the plot. Responsible, you maybe you followed your teacher's instruction and you outlined and planned for uh, how this uh, plot was supposed to build and come to some sort of climax and and, and, uh, some sort of conclusion toward the end, or maybe you were just one of those like, it's just going to come to me, and you're like, just write, well, you know, for some of us that wouldn't have been typing, Um, it would have been writing uh, with a pencil, and um, I don't think any of you were carving it in stone, at that time, but anyways, just, that's an that's old joke. But um, maybe you experienced your teacher's evaluation. Where are you going with this? What was your point here? Maybe uh, you've told a bedtime story to a child. A- and, and as you, the story takes a particular turn, the child says, wait, 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 why is that happening? Or or that can't happen. That's not how it's supposed to happen. And and you might respond with, hey, who's telling the story here? Right? This is my story I'm telling here. Because you're the author of it. This morning I want to challenge you to let the author speak. Let the author speak. And what the people that heard Jesus the people that watched Jesus and his followers, especially as we look at today, what they could not get their minds around was that they were hearing from, they were watching the author of life. The author of creation. The author of their very story. The root word of authority is author. The author has the authority. This reminds me that the, the author of a story is the one that has the authority on how the story should go. We have a tendency to resist authority that's placed over us. I heard about a restroom, an office restroom where a note was placed on the hand dryer, press button for a message from the boss because it was just going to blow a bunch of hot air, right? But there is, there is a difference, and we understand authority that is not handled well. But when we talk about the authority of God, we're talking about the source of authority coming from the author, that all other authority is lent from him and is accountable to him. Okay, This is what Romans 13 goes on about with governing authority. That all of it has a responsibility to the ultimate authority that has written the big story, the author. Are they playing out the way that it was written for them to do so? He is the author of all of his creation story. He breathed life into us and those who bear, as those who bear his image in his story. In some ways, how they, we are supposed to represent the author in his story. He's writing your story. And he breathed life into you. And it is not just hot air. Jesus is the authority on life because being God, he himself is the author of life. This means that Jesus breathed life into each one of us. And when we learn from him in the Gospel of Matthew, we are learning about how life is meant to be lived with Jesus as our king, with Jesus as our authority. But we read read in John 1 about Jesus being the author of life, about Jesus being a part of God's creation life, Which includes breathing life into us. We read in John 1 verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the word. This this term meaning referring to Jesus because he is our ultimate message from God. The word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So nothing on this planet can say, I don't belong to you. You're not the boss of me. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. As creator, Jesus is the author of life. He is the source of life. And we talk sometimes about something that we, we might love doing or, or, or like lounging in a hot tub. I, I, I can't stand hot tubs. I just start getting itchy from all the chlorine and the heat. But, you know, for you, it might, you might uh, sit lounging in a hot tub, maybe with the snow falling around you. And, and you want to say, this is the life. Right? Or maybe it's uh, freezing in a tree stand. Over these last, you know, 6 a.m. in the morning, the sun's not even up. And, and you are ready to kill anything that your tag says that you kill can kill when it walks in front of you. And you're sitting there thinking, this is the life. God has made very clear. He has shown very clearly that in following Jesus, we find life. This is what is meant that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's because he is the author of life who lived life so that we might see how life is meant to be lived. His very life is a message. That's why he's called the Word in John 1. And this is what is part of what it means that he is the Word. In today's passage, we find the the learned people of the day finding out that they have something to learn from the author of life. And it's going to take some submission to his authority as the author. Sadly, since they consider themselves the experts, they're not very open to what Jesus has to say. So we start Matthew chapter 12 in verse 1, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So the idea was um, many of the grain fields uh, for for Jewish farmers that were abiding by what the law told them to do is they would as they would harvest the the grain they would leave the corners and the edges the spots in the field that they missed they were to leave it there and they were leave it there for the poor or for the for the traveler to be able to come and make use of it and um i've actually done this out in south dakota uh, before when somebody showed me, yeah, you can do this too, because um, I didn't know that. But you can uh, grab um, the top of a wheat uh, plant, and you can pull the the seeds right off of the top of it, and you can rub it in your hand, and that's uh, breaking the grain out of the chaff, out of the husk, and then you can blow the husk out of your hand, and you're left with that grain, pop it right in your mouth. And you like chew it until it becomes like this, you know, this uh, feels like dough, you know, in your mouth. And get some sustenance from it. So that's what's going on. And the Pharisees point out that according to their rules, how they have interpreted the Sabbath, this is against the law. So we get, uh, come back to verse 3. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read that in the law how the, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now when he's, he starts off that last statement, for the Son of Man, he's like, I'm going to explain why I have told you what I have told you. That's an explanation word. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And that's, in other words, that's where he's getting to. And I'm hoping that we won't be like the Pharisees this morning. And that we'll let Jesus speak on questions of what's right and wrong. The Pharisees are the, the religious, a part of the religious leaders of that day. Uh, as the, they're the, the especially religious side of the leaders of that day. You would have the Sadducees that were more of the political uh, wing of the leaders of that day. And they had taken the role of interpreting and enforcing obedience to the Mosaic law. And at one point, uh, there became 39 different categories of what would be considered work that was not allowed on the Sabbath. And and I and I looked this up online. You can actually find um, what I saw was this diagram that basically looked like uh, the table of elements of all the different 39 categories of work that that Jews, Orthodox Jews today, still uh, try to avoid on Saturday the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. And we'll talk a little bit more about the how, the Sabbath and, and and how that developed in Jesus' ministry. Um, but the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples here of breaking the law of Moses by reaping and eating grain on the Sabbath. Luke's account of this just talks about how they were the rubbing it in their hands, and that breaks one of the rules of grinding on the Sabbath. And so... Um, But anyways, this would have given the disciples at the very least a poor reputation if they were going to be able to be slandered and maligned. But certainly Jesus is using this as a teaching moment for the Pharisees that object to this. In the end, Jesus' final statement is that he is in total control of the Sabbath, its institution and its purposes, because he made it. He was the one that rested on the seventh day originally. We'll talk about how that relates to it, but he's declaring that his interpretation is the final authority, the final statement on the Sabbath, and he leads into this conclusion from three sides, from David's actions, King David, and the actions of the priests who serve in the temple, and the statement of the prophet Hosea. And that's what we read about in verse 3 speaking about David when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. This is at a time when David was fleeing from King Saul, David being the anointed king of Israel that would be taking Saul's place. And so Saul's not too happy about that. He wants his son David, uh, Jonathan on the throne. So so David, as he's fleeing, he goes and um, takes this bread, he's given this bread by the priests uh, for he and his men. And Jesus argues that he has the right to do as he pleases since he is the Lord of the Sabbath and he first argues this from this experience of David, the man after God's own heart. And it's clear that with with um, God continuing to bless David and God not condemning or correcting David with this, that David did not do something wrong. But by the Pharisees' standard, it would have been wrong. So Jesus is pointing out here, okay, so something doesn't work with your rule here. Something doesn't work with your interpretation of the Sabbath here. And he also goes on to say, and by the way, the priests... They do a lot of work on the Sabbath. But because it's in the temple, it's allowed. That's why he follows up with saying, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. He's bringing this all back to, I have authority over the Sabbath. I have authority over the temple. He is more important than any of these. Therefore, his followers are free to listen to him over the Pharisees. And he goes on to to quote Hosea, If you you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, the guiltless being the disciples, but they're being claimed, they're being uh, pointed out that they are guilty by the Pharisees' standards in their interpretation of the Sabbath. His third argument here is that the Pharisees' unjust condemnation comes from one of God's prophets uh, labeling it as such. He's showing how his arguments are closer to the heart of God the Father who cares more about mercy. It's like, if you're, gonna do, if you're going to keep my Sabbath law or be merciful to others... What's more important to me is that you be merciful. Notice he does not argue that his disciples aren't breaking the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. His argument points to the idea that because he is God in human flesh, his disciples are free to abide by his authoritative interpretation. He has the authority you know um there one of the first uh disney movies uh after you know that i had any interest in i know this this is like you're going to be like what is this i don't know what it was maybe it was because well, it was it was uh, mer- Mermen and mermaids or whatever you know it was fascinating to me but it was a little mermaid all right it is also one of the first disney princess movies where basically the storyline was don't listen to your parents, do your own thing, become your own person. So anyways, but so, so the little mermaid has this friend that's a seagull named Scuttle. And, and the little mermaid is fascinated with life on land. And that's kind of in the story of the little mermaid that's like the forbidden thing that the parent doesn't want her to do, but she's got it, just gotta figure it out, and you know in the end, her dad's like, "Oh, I'm so glad you didn't listen to me which is that's I just gave you the- a Disney princess movie in in uh ten words here so but uh so the little mermaid's got this friend scuttle, this seagull, just get past it it's a mermaid and a, a seagull talking to each other but And she's collected all these things, and she wants to know, what are they? And he picks up a fork, what we know as a fork. He says, oh, this here, I know what this is. It's a dinglehopper. He says, you see, uh, the humans uh, use this to to, uh, run it through their hair to give it the wavy look. And she's fascinated with this, and she's like, "Okay, what about this?" And it's a pipe, you know, that you put tobacco in and smoke. He says, "This, oh, this is a snarfblatt. It is a musical instrument that that uh, they use it to play music on." And continuing to be fascinated, she pulls out a candlestick. He goes, "Oh, this here, this is a dinglehopper." And it has different purposes, like cutting hair and playing drums with all of this, obviously because we know these objects, we think this is ridiculous because we from from our perspective of knowing the bigger story going on we're we're seeing this scuttle, the seagull uh educating this this uh little mermaid and we're thinking don't listen to him Jesus is life He is, he's the one that is in the beginning that all things were made through him and he's sitting here saying to his disciples guys don't worry about what they're telling you they don't know what they're talking about and he's looking at these guys saying guys I made the Sabbath. I made the grain. I put the very breath in your lungs. I have the authority. He's explaining how he is the one that decides what the Sabbath is for. And what if if he were talking about something that's maybe really important to you, like how you should be with friends and family. You know, Kelly and I were, were talking recently about... about um, Someone that we, we know that claims to be a believer, but, but their lifestyle is just like, okay, you, you cannot, you cannot uh, uh, reason between claiming to be a believer and living in this way. And, I, and you know, I said, honey, what Christ tells us is in 2 Corinthians is don't have anything to do with this person. Don't even eat with them. The person that can calls themselves a believer and yet lives in this way. And, and that's not comfortable. That is not, that it's not a lot of fun. It's like we, we sit there and we think, how do you even do that? What does this mean? But you start with the idea that God has told us how we should live. God has told us what this should be. And let's go from there. We should seek God's will in everything that we wonder about, whether it is right or wrong for us. I love how Romans 14 explains this in this way. And we we had a great time in men's Bible study uh, yesterday. We we're, we we're, uh, just wrapped up Romans 11, and we were talking about the the cultural situation in the churches in Rome in that they were combined of Jews and Gentiles together the, and the cultural tension that's going on with that. And Romans 14 uh, starts to drill down into some of those challenges, specifically like, well, should we be telling the Jewish brothers, guys, you're, you're Christians now, work on Saturday. Or, or should we be saying, guys, you're Christians now, it doesn't matter what you eat. And so the way that Paul addresses this in Romans 14, verse 5, he says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, you need to hear that. That is a very different approach than we take in American Christianity. Uh, What we tend to do in American Christianity is we say, Oh, I don't know if this is right or wrong. So I'm going to go ahead and do it and see if I feel bad about it. What we're told in Romans 14 is each person needs to be fully convinced in their own mind whether or not they should partake. It's a relationship with God and his Holy Spirit that we need to trust that He is going to direct us. He goes on to say in verse 23 But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, dealing with, you know, should we be eating any kind of meat with those Jewish believers? Because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, whatever God has not said in, in these gray areas of following Him, you know, Where God has said, as the author of your story, that's okay. If we can't say, God has has given me a go on that, it can be sin. We should learn from Jesus here as he lived as the authority on right and wrong. We should seek out what he had to say. As we're doing here this morning. As we're learning from him here. And as you read God's word. And we should take any issue that are up for interpretation to him. And we should listen to our brothers and sisters when they start with, well, God's word tells us this. Well, Jesus says this. We, had, we covered all sorts of these ethical issues in Matthew 5 through 7. Where Jesus says, okay, you've heard it said, and specifically that that has to do with, you've heard that the the teachers of the law say this, but I tell you this. He spoke on lust, he spoke on divorce, he spoke on promising things. Jesus speaks on ethics. As as we move along here, uh, you can see this little section in your bulletin here. I've labeled it the intermission. How did Jesus change the Sabbath as the Lord of the Sabbath? Now this is just a little cursory study on my part. I'm not talking about all aspects of the Sabbath. We we have as one of the Ten Commandments, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I am not um, expounding on every aspect of what that means today. I think there's a lot of principle uh, from the idea of of resting on the Sabbath, of ceasing from our work um, that we can take from that command still. But the context of this issue of the Sabbath is coming up. And, and, and it, I'm sorry, it comes up in the context in this way. Uh, re- remember back at the end of Matthew 11, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So, that idea of resting is already in the context here. And so, Matthew tags this uh, situation of Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees out in the field right after Jesus is talking about resting. And I want to show you here that by resting in Jesus for our salvation, in many ways, we have taken on God's Sabbath rest. And entering into a resting fellowship with God means trusting in God's perfect work and in his perfect will. Uh, the promised land that the The Hebrew people leaving Egypt and heading to Canaan as their promised land, that was represented rest for them. We talked about this in Hebrews and and specifically if you read Hebrews 4 through 11 it will talk about how Jesus has become our rest and and but just like those who had the opportunity to enter into the promised land they they refused to and so they did not enter into God's rest so that kind of comes into play in that and we're not going to go fully into that but if we read in Hebrews 4 verse 4 he had said He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. So he's like, yeah, I think there's something back in creation. And of course, everybody reading it is like, yeah, in creation. That's when the Sabbath was instituted. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So we know that the Sabbath was instituted on the days of creation. Now, did God need to rest? No, he's all-powerful. Okay, I, honestly, I think that, that part of that was God saying, you know what, I took a week to create everything and it only took me six days. But the word that's used here, why we know also that God didn't need a rest, is the term for Sabbath means to cease, to desist. Desist sounds kind of weird. We know what persist means. To persist in doing something means to continue to do something. To desist means stop doing it. Okay? Maybe you've heard of a letter, uh, a legal letter from an attorney that's saying, hey, we think you're breaking the law, so we write this letter to tell you cease and desist what you're doing. So, in, in keeping with the practice that God instituted in creation. His people, the Hebrews, when the sun went down on Friday, because their days started on in the evening, evening to evening, they were to cease and desist from their work. They were to rest in God. They were to trust God. They were to trust Him that, you know, that's pretty hard when you're in a, a, a nomadic community for sure. You know, when you're When you're living hand to mouth, it's pretty hard in an agrarian community. You guys who have worked on a farm, there's always something to do. But but in that seventh day, they were to cease and desist from all their work. And the writer of the Hebrews here is, goes into the whole description of how Israel failed to enter into God's rest, the promised land. And the reason why he used their, them as an example is because the Hebrews were in danger of missing it again. Why? Because they weren't taking Sabbath? No. Because they were saying, he said, today if you hear God's voice, do not fail to enter into his rest of trusting in Christ for salvation. So why we, we would miss it if we didn't put, they, they would miss it if they did not put their faith in Christ and rest from their religious works. And that's why it says in verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So there remains a Sabbath rest in the sense there remains an offer of a Sabbath rest. For whoever has has entered into that rest has rested from his works as God did from his. What what does that mean? This ties into how Jesus has rested from his saving work because no more needs to be done. Remember when when we were in Hebrews, Jesus as our great high priest, he did his work and he sat down because it was finished. Jesus had rested. Therefore, we enter into true Sabbath rest when we enter into a saving relationship with Christ. And we rest. We cease and desist from trying to work for a relationship with God. To enter into Christ, to receive Christ as our Savior, is to enter into his Sabbath rest. And all of that Sabbath stuff was leading up to that understanding. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath because he has provided his followers from rest, from all of our works, our attempts to save ourselves. That is ingrained in us so deeply that I gotta work to do something. You know how you know that? Because the Roman Catholic Church began in its in its uh, infancy, like in the in the two hundreds, like like hundred and eighty years after Christ walked this earth we started setting up bishops and we started setting up sacraments and we started setting up this idea that well these bishops have to carry the authority of you know we started looking to the church to tell us what do I need to do and the church started getting away from resting in Christ and in his finished work because working for what you earn that's ingrained in us But Jesus calls us to rest in him. So the rest of our verses deal with what this might look like practically. We read in verse 9, we're back in in Matthew 12. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. This would have been, uh, the, the term is dried hand. So it would have been drawn back and not useful not usable, and they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So basically, this is a setup, and, it, and they asked him this, that they might accuse him, and he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out, and how much more value is a man than a sheep? So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So, Jesus is intentionally put in this position to have to make a values decision between following the teaching of the Pharisees and healing this man. Jesus calls out the religious leaders' hypocrisy by regarding the tending of their livestock on the Sabbath, but not caring about a person. You know, maybe you guys have seen that internet video of the guy that. That finally it's like, what is he tugging on? And he pulls an entire sheep up out of this trench. And the sheep goes bounding away and <laughs> bite back, back into the trench again. You'll have to look that up. It's hysterical. It's not illustrating anything here this morning. But, but you know, you do... Even these Pharisees, if something need done on that day, they were still going to do it. like Like rescuing their their livestock from a from a dangerous situation but what we see here in connection with the with the previous verses Jesus once again speaks from his own authority on the matter it's almost like he's saying i'm so glad you're asking because i'm the one that should be telling you how to live this out that is not what they're thinking that's their job in their minds He goes on to say, uh, Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. You know, this is kind of like telling the paralytic, Stand up and walk. When did the healing happen? Before he stretched out his hand. It's a withered hand that can't be stretched out. Jesus says, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired, against him, how to destroy him. From this second section of dealing with the Sabbath, I hope you'll see to let Jesus speak on when it's right to do good. How often do we find ourselves uh, rationalizing a sin of omission? Okay, maybe you've heard of committing sin, but we also sin when we omit doing good. A sin of omission, of doing good. The Lord is laying uh, something heavy on our hearts. Say, and we think, well, well, I'm I'm on a way I'm on my way to to something important. I I shouldn't be late. Well, I I don't want to offend that person by asking if they need financial help. You know, I was on the phone with with a guy yesterday, um, a awesome Christian brother, and I'm looking forward to. Uh, having him come up and speak at the the Montgomery County Christian Men's Breakfast, and just in the course of our conversation, he he talks about it, he says, well, you know, the lady I'm with, you know, we got five kids, and all this, and I'm kind of checking this guy out as I'm talking to him and stuff, and I, and I just said, when I you know just over the course of the conversation, I had the opportunity to talking to him, and I said, hey, I just need to ask you, I said, you mentioned the lady I'm with, and I knew this guy has a real vibrant testimony and things, I said. So I'm assuming that at some point God told you you should marry that lady. And he goes, oh, yeah, we're married. Yeah, absolutely. I said, okay. And I just said, you know, you know I care about you because I asked you that. <laughs> you know, because it just did, you know, in, in this day and age. But, but it, was a, it was something that the Lord laid on my heart. It was like, you need to ask this guy when he says the lady I'm with. You don't know him from Adam, and in some ways, it was kind of like, J.D., this might be something that this guy needs for you to speak into his life. But those moments where it's like, God wants you to say something. God wants you to ask something. God wants you to to ask that accountability question. God wants you to follow up on, on that thing that that person said, hey, can you check on me with this? You know, we might think, I, I should wait to see if the situation clears up, and then I'll see if I need to step in and do something. When the Lord is laying something heavy on our hearts, let Jesus speak on when it's right to do good. And certainly he has spoken plenty in his word, and that is the first place that we should be listening. But let, let, uh, let's take what Jesus says here to heart It is always the right time to do good. Let Jesus tell you what is the good you should be doing. And we'll touch on enabling a little bit here. But he says, um, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus, with his authority, and that's what we should be surprised by here. The authority that Jesus just basically, he didn't say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and you have the, this uh, in the Talmud, and you have this in the mikvah. And, no, he just says, okay, it's right to do good on the Sabbath, guys, because he's speaking from his authority, and we should listen to his authoritative voice. Take note here, Jesus has told us that he always does what the Father tells him to do. There were plenty of other people that needed healing that day. So it wasn't a matter of Jesus just saying, hey, if I come across a person that needs healing, I'm supposed to heal them. No, he has told us, whatever I do, I do as the Father commands. And in this particular time, the Father is saying, it's go time. And so basically this means that Jesus is taking the Pharisees' concerns and he is filing them in the round cabinet under his desk. Because the Father has said, it's go time. Use your power to heal this man. We see this in the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus teaches on in Luke 10. Where we told about a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, now, by chance, a priest, okay, well, this guy, you should, you know, the, the idea here is, okay, the priest is going to know how to deal with this. He was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So in, in, in the idea, if we have the idea that this priest is our authority, the idea would be, okay, that's what you're supposed to do. Then it says, likewise a Levite. Okay, here we got another person that should know what they're doing. When he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. But Jesus speaks something that he knows that the hearer is going to resonate with the hearer, that this is the right thing to do. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, this man that had been beaten and left for dead. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, and pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So in their culture, the priest and the Levite would have been like the standard of, okay, this is how you're supposed to deal with it. But Jesus is telling from this story somebody that you wouldn't have expected is actually the one that did what was right and and he's actually saying this person is good he explained that the priest and the levite were not good in their behavior because they weren't caring and the samaritan was good because he took compassionate action now when it comes to the question of am i doing the right thing by doing good for this person in other words and a relationship that could be enabling, we need to let Jesus show us and teach us, because he can, if you know Christ as your Savior, he can direct us for what is the good for that person. But it is always the right time to do good. But it may not be good to give what that person is asking for. I'm not going to tell you, Line by line, what that is. Because if you know Christ is your Savior, you have a relationship with Christ. And he can give you from his authority what is the right thing to do. That's what we're getting across here. You know, uh, I'm, I'm reading a pre-publish uh, of uh, Alan Sparks's book on being, being a rural pastor. And I'm really enjoying it. And I loved reading a story of he was ha- on his way somewhere, and there was a there was a rental house next door to his house, and it you know the the it was a neighbor house that just it was like difficult to get to know anybody because they were only there for six to ten months. And as he's pulling out of his uh, driveway, he sees the pregnant uh, woman living there, um, trying to start a lawnmower. And she's trying to mow grass that's about a foot tall. And, you know, he just says, okay, so I go back inside, and I change my clothes, and I get my riding mower out. And he says, I, so I try with my riding mower, and that wouldn't cut the grass. So he says, I go and get my push mower and push it a little bit. And he says, eventually, the, the best that I could do was to lean the push mower back and kind of trim the grass a little bit, you know, little bit by little bit he says, you know, I don't even remember what it was that I was on my way to do that day. A- and um he said, I remember that that uh there was something that I'd asked um the lady, you know, is can can you tell me if there's uh you know anything that I need to watch out for in the lawn or anything like that? And she says, Oh, you know what? I think there was something that, that we need to be careful of. She said, uh i i i would ask my boyfriend but he's inside asleep and you know he just thought to himself you know lord you told me to do this so it's the right thing to do and and he and he left it with that and that's what we need to learn from is what is 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 the, the, the author of life that is still giving life that can direct us from his authority. You know, there's plenty in scripture that tells us do this and don't do this. We're talking about in what is the right time to do and what is the right thing to do for this person. In our next verses we see there that the that an early tremor here of what will become an earthquake that will create a chasm between Jesus and these religious rulers. And we will see this as we come back into Matthew 12. He says, and and we should be reminded from this amazing statement, reminded that it is always wrong to reject Jesus' authority. We, We are really meant to sit here and have our jaws drop with verse 14, but the Pharisees went out, and conspired against him how to destroy him. It's like, we got a man that's going to live the rest of his life with two good hands. And this ticks you off so much that it's like, yeah, he's got to go. This Jesus has got to go. You know, it's like that amazing statement from John, where it's like Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and it makes him too popular for the religious leaders. So it says, so they... they, they put their heads together even more for how they could kill, kill Jesus. And then it says, and they also decided Lazarus needs to die too. Because, because him being raised by, from, from the dead by Jesus, this is just making too much press. This marks the end here in verse 14. This marks the end of the leader's reasoning with Jesus in order to understand him. And from this point forward, the religious leaders see him as an obstacle that needs to be removed. Because they believed that they were the authority, not him. You know, we have a statement in our culture, you're dead to me. And that's basically what they're saying here. What's sad is that these leaders will persist. And Jesus will eventually tell them that they are committing the unpardonable sin. That's coming up in this chapter. And it, at one point he will say, I will only speak to these people in parables. And that's what we'll see in Matthew from that point forward. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. And it's because in this chapter, eventually what we'll see here in this chapter is they'll make a the, the statement, you know what? He's healing people by the power of the devil. And Jesus is like, all right, guys. You're not going to hear the plain truth from me anymore. The window of opportunity is closing on them, and they are helping it push closed. And all the fresh air of the giver of life is messing up the dust that they've collected on their traditions. So they got to help the window close. And it's the window of opportunity. You know, <clears throat> during our Thanksgiving service um, two weeks ago, it was it was so neat to kind of review from 10 years ago that there was a Sunday morning that uh, we found out that both the carpenter's house had its roof torn off and, and uh, they were trying to roof it and Rhonda's house. Had its roof turned off torn off, and they were trying to roof it and Monday there was more heavy rain being called for and, and when I got that call on Sunday morning, one right after the other, um by God's grace, I didn't panic, but you know what I was raised and i and i it wasn't it wasn't a a, a hard decision at all but but I was raised. under the idea that you don't do work on Sundays, right? Because somehow, because I was raised Presbyterian, okay? And in Presbyterianism, um, a lot of the church stuff is thought to replace the Jewish stuff. It's replacement theology. So Sunday became the Sabbath. So if you were raised uh, that you don't do any work on Sundays, even if you weren't Presbyterian... It was influenced by Presbyterian. So anyway, so you so you were partly Presbyterian. Um so, so what would have happened if it'd been like, Ugh, I'm sorry, you're not supposed to do work on Sundays. You know, a lot more than just the carpenter's uh, family room roof would have collapsed from the rain that had already come. But instead of of uh a tradition holding up the good that God wanted us to do. We were able to stop and say, you know what? God is sovereign. If if this is the predicament that God has put members of our church family in, this is a predicament that he has put us in, and we know that he is going to provide through us what he wants done. And that's how it works. He is the author of life. He he has a sovereign plan. And and, and here's the deal. Of course, these men eventually would, quote-unquote, destroy Jesus. They would kill him. They would use, by political maneuvering, they would use the Romans to do it. And they could wash their hands and say, we didn't do it. For the same reason we, uh, that, that we don't freak out with God's sovereign plan. We can trust that what he brings us to, the opportunities that we have to do good, the opportunities that we have to grow in our relationship with him, uh, with those, those really tough questions of, what is the right thing to do here, Lord? It is his sovereign plan. To help us to grow in our relationship with Him, when we know how to do good for others, let's bow our heads and ask Him to do that here. Lord God, we pray that You would direct us corporately and individually to know what good You desire for us to do. Lord God, there, there, there might—I'm sure that there are many here that that. Um, are in the the challenging situation of um, by helping this person, are we enabling something that shouldn't be enabled? Lord, I I, I stand ready to do good, but but is this good for this person? Uh, many of us see needs and opportunities. Many of us see relational and and. Um, needs of spiritual growth in others and we wonder do you want me to be involved Lord God Lord you always want us to do good to be used by you to be available to surrender what we think is our life to our part that you have written in the story that you've written for us So I pray from all of this that we would look to Jesus as having complete authority and that we would take our lives and lay it before him and that we would listen to how you direct for us to live them. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.